A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. And I'm Michael Leader. On the show this week, a steamy love triangle is formed in passages. The anime first slam dunk blockbuster finally comes to our shores. And on Film Club, love triangles prove just as tricky for Jules and Jim. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a little White Lies podcast. Michael, it's always so exciting to talk to you. I mean, just as a human, it's exciting to talk to you. But also, it does feel like particularly exciting on this podcast that we are kind of the Highlanders. There can only be one. (laughs) You passed it on to me. It's like when the older cast members of Hollyoaks or something come back for a little cameo, (laughs) check in on how the gang's doing. No, it's always a pleasure, Layla. It's it's really nice to see you as a human being as well, as well as a host of the podcast that's going from strength to strength. I know. And, you know, how much has changed since our first ever time we recorded together? That first episode was uh, Queen and Slim and David Copperfield, and we were doing it in person and nobody knew what COVID-19 was at the time. Gosh, that is so long ago. Yeah. It's amazing to think there was a time where recording podcasts in person was something you do week in, week out. I really miss it. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent. I mean, I do like that, like now, uh, with everything being remote, we kind of get people to come in from all over the place. I mean, like transport is just so ludicrously expensive. I know like that was something that was a real struggle for you when you were a film critic, because you just end up having to pay the most ridiculous train fares just to like come in and review Free Guy. And it's just, you know, it's, 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 it's not a great economy. I love that you bullseyed the film that broke the, <laughs> the donkey's back. <laughs> I think it was Free Guy and the Space Jam legacy sequel that I paid for the trip to London for because I moved out to rural Sussex, which is, you know, an, an hour on the train at most, but it's a very crucial hour and an expensive hour on the train. So, yeah, I, in, in the last year or so, I've I've enjoyed relaxing away from the hustle and bustle of the weekly review circuit unless I'm called in by the podcast if there's an animated film to come and review I'll gladly step up oh no obviously we've got far more value than that but I mean like you clearly you have expertise in this like animated realm I mean there's a new book out obviously I think most listeners will be aware of your podcast Ghibliotech yeah but like what have you been up to I mean aside from just everything I've seen on social media that makes me feel very lazy well you say there's a book coming out there are two books coming out which is kind of crazy towards the back end of last year we wrote two books we blinked 
and then the release weeks are coming around. So this is me and my co-host and colleague, co-writer Jake Cunningham for Ghibli Attack with two books. We've got a book that's out literally the week that we're recording, which is The World of Studio Ghibli, which is a book about the films of Studio Ghibli and their, the themes that go into their work. But it's aimed at seven to ten year olds. So it's much more in the Usborne, Ladybird, Darling Kindersley kind of vein. Very beautifully illustrated by an illustrator called Lucy Zhang out in um, Australia. And we've had a whale of a time sort of approaching these films with that sort of wonder but accessible innocence of a sort of child reader rather than as film critics or nerds that we have in the past. And then the other book that's out in just a few weeks, I suppose, is a a break from this animation corner I've painted myself into. It's a a book about Korean cinema, which is an area, as as we know, as film fans of the last 10, 15 years knows, it's a, a great national cinema full of some of the best filmmakers working today. However, there's still so much to discover and so much to to dig into. And using the format we cracked over the last couple of books where we have 30 films one film per filmmaker, trying to get a handle on this large body of work, but also present an accessible gateway to it. Uh, That's what we've applied to Korean cinema, which is exciting. And for us, going into live action cinema rather than just animation. So it feels like uh, something new for us. I'm very kind of impressed with my algorithm in that it just fed me the Korean cinema book. <laughs> <laughs> just like not being, my kids aren't quite like seven to 10. So it's like, I, I, I'm i kind of impressed that like, it was like, no, this is your more likely purchase. Not that I wouldn't kind of support you in, in, in every way because I'm a big fan. You've just been up to so much. You're also doing all these screenings. I mean, like, you know, it's not like you retired once you left the podcast. I became more specific and focused, I suppose, because uh, when I stepped down from the podcast and ceded the host chair, that came at the same time as when uh, my tenure as series producer on Inside Cinema, the BBC Arts iPlayer video essay series, which you contributed to, came to an end as well. We had three and a half seasons and kept me busy for three or four years. That came to a close and also moving out (laughs) to Sussex at the same time. It felt like a good time to step away from hustling for the reviews circuit but then recommit to the podcast and books and screenings and be a bit more on what I feel like is the front line of audience engagement, I suppose. Put my um, time and effort where my mouth is in terms of I've written about anime for all these years, but actually harness the moment of interest in these films and talk to programmers at cinemas around the country and show maybe deeper cuts that we know there are there's an audience for and thankfully surprisingly delightfully i've been proved right on many occasions where we've had screenings like a monthly screening series at the prince charles cinema in london but also screenings around the place we went up to the northwest at the beginning of the year to lancaster and chester and to north wales as well and we've just had a screening in brighton this past week and it's been really great showing films that aren't necessarily the obvious films from the world of japanese animation but seeing that people have such curiosity and enthusiasm for seeing this stuff on the big screen because it is you know i I've, I've fallen into this trap in the past where animation is such a big industry in its own right and a big fandom in its own right that you almost see it as separate from mainstream film criticism film fandom repertory cinema and programming and i suppose i want to 
stand up on a soapbox and shout that it should be seen as part of film programming and repertory cinema and criticism. I mean, it's funny that you say that because I was at the Edinburgh Film Festival last week and they were saying that, you know, they were screening The Last Slam Dunk and that was one of their most popular titles. Like they struggled to meet demand because actually people were really interested in it. And I think it is kind of regarded as a niche in a way that it really really isn't i mean there's a huge amount of interest in these films like beyond sort of oh god i don't know how to put it in a way i feel like it's almost regarded as a kink yeah well actually <laughs> it's pretty vanilla <laughs> like i think most people come and watch these films and there's just you know just on every sensory level there's so much to enjoy yeah absolutely kink that's fantastic a great sort of setup for quite a sexy episode of the podcast i'm sure as well oh yeah but i think it is that thing that um it's been so surprising with every venue you've been working with. It's been a real 8 to 80 kind of audience at times. We've worked with venues who've said anime is not really for us. We don't necessarily have a young audience for that. So we have more of a grey pound audience and have been able to suggest films in different genres or different tones and styles that might suit that audience. And we've been very very pleasing when you we went we, did, we screened a film called Miss Hokusai, which is a biography of Hokusai's daughter, who was also a great artist, but living in the shadow of her great father. Um, we showed that at the Picture House in Bromley, and we had a great group of older ladies in the audience who came up to us afterwards saying they've never watched any Japanese animation, but they came because of that artist link. They were curious about that because animation really is not to sound like Guillermo del Toro, sorry, but animation is cinema and it can tackle anything that cinema can in different styles and tones and moods uh, with as much expressionism as you want or as little uh, as you want. You know, the the possibilities are endless, really. So it's it's been fun doing that for the last few years. And then also, I suppose, whenever I feel anxious about having hitched myself to a niche or a kink <laughs> it's good that i have the korean cinema stuff going on in the background as well yes the famously unkinky world of uh, korean cinema <laughs> <laughs> but i gotta ask you like now that i mean it's been about a year since you decided to step down and like give me this gig um is there anything that you really miss about like presenting the podcast i mean were you like very sad that i got to review thor love and the thunder and you didn't get to well, yes, I was not jealous on, on, on that side. I think I was always, I'm always jealous about the film that's in the second slot. When I stepped down, it was because the blockbusters were trending downwards in quality and it was a less exciting prospect to be reviewing some of those. However, it is, you know, now, now that I have childcare and having to factor in the matinee screening that would finish in time for me to come back to pick up from nursery, my film choices are quite limited. So some of those films that would land in the second slot, the, the limited releases, the world cinema releases, are the things that I've missed seeing as much of. And also, what I love about doing this gig, and I, I wonder if you feel the same way, it is just great to talk talk to colleagues we're oh, so busy yeah. however many tweets we may send each other or whatever whatsapp messages we may send each other it's very hard to actually carve out an hour of time to talk with colleagues who you respect and admire and hear their opinions so that's something that's been as i've withdrawn into my writer's attic and have just been staring at the word counts every day that's something i've missed yeah i mean it's kind of like that balance because as much as i love to talk to kind of as brilliant a mind and, and as insightful a person as like a laura venning i do make her go and watch the Jurassic World films. <laughs> <laughs> but that's part of the fun, isn't it? I remember that we had, when we used to have Pamela Hutchinson on and, of course, excellent 
golden age Hollywood silent era cinema critic and expert, but she she would be reviewing like a J.J. Abrams popcorn munch. No, she was on the Joker episode, in fact, actually. Oh, God, what but a piece of crap th- that film is. Absolutely. And- <laughs> well, it, that was absolutely. We shouldn't go back and talk about Joker, but there's something that I do love about the podcast context where you can sometimes match up critics with films they wouldn't otherwise be seeing because it's only really for 10 minutes of their time um, in terms of the actual recorded content rather than however 500 to 1000 words of review you might want to send those elsewhere if you're a commissioning editor. So that was was some of the fun for me as well was unexpected conversations with critics, uh, maybe going out of their comfort zone a little bit. Yeah, we we do have a couple of good ones coming up, Uh, some kind of new guests which are quite exciting yeah, I I always kind of think it is fun to kind of like match that like highbrow, lowbrow, but in my mind, does it really matter? I mean, I feel like I can have this in-depth conversation about the season 10 of Vanderpump Rules, the reality TV show, as I can about, you know, Oppenheimer. There's as much to dig into. Absolutely, yeah. And it can make really good podcasting with the right people. Absolutely. Yeah. If anybody's commissioning that um, That podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we've got this very exciting kind of giant film. You know, like we talk about like Barbenheimer being like this thing that like saved cinema in so many ways and like made massive box office. And we've got really something in that in the first slam dunk, which I think is like a year after it came out in Japan. I mean, that is quite an interesting interesting gap because it's like it's a bit of a buzz lapse i mean like now with all of these strikes and all of these kind of gaps in terms of like marketing do you kind of think that perhaps like there might be a bit of gap in like film criticism to give more space to things like the first sam dunk the foreign films the independent films all of that stuff because we're not going to be inundated by press about the big blockbusters yeah you'd you'd hope so you'd hope that these films will be able to wrestle their way to the front of the queue The, the thing that's been tricky we talk about new releases and blockbusters that may be delayed for me it's the fact that barbie is still screening every day every slot in my local cinema because why wouldn't you take that off if it's still making money why would you gamble on something else but um with with the first slam dunk that's a really interesting case we'll probably talk about this a little bit when we get to the review but that yeah i think that film's still playing in japanese cinemas i think it might even be still be in the top 10 at the box office even though it's been nine months since it came out it's stuck around for a long time it's been a real sensation across all of asia so we don't really we don't really have films like that here that are still in cinemas nine months down the line still finding their way into the top 10 because things come and go and yeah it is critics it's on the shoulders of critics and also cinemas to find the way to give the space to all these smaller releases that they would have given to bigger films but I think people in working in programming and people in working in criticism will always shout for the good work anyway it's not like they were I mean what has what has been delayed in terms of the big films that you think that um would have muscled things out. June 2, of course, was like the big the big focus for the rest of the year in terms of brainy blockbuster entertainment, I suppose. We're, we're pretty good at holding two thoughts in our heads at once about this is the big film and this is the smaller film, I suppose. 
Are we though? Did Barbenheimer suggest that perhaps we aren't and we get super overwhelmed by the idea of two thoughts in our heads? I think that's a once in a generation marketing coup, to be honest. (laughs) I really hope the people behind that who stoked it are getting a well-deserved rest (laughs) for the rest of the year. But I mean, I did wonder before we kind of move on to the films themselves, I did want to ask you about how you, I mean, there was a fantastic piece that we've mentioned on the podcast before by Manuela Lazic about how kind of of the influencer film criticism you know overlap is like really very difficult for the industry and you were kind of talking about online about how you felt that like this is kind of not even really a side gig anymore even if you're kind of a multi-hyphenate like yourself and doing like lots of different things within this industry it's very very difficult to carve out a career unless you are that kind of chief critic at a broadsheet and yeah, what that means for the industry. Well, yeah, I mean, not to get too inside baseball about it. I think the lifestyle of picking up one or two reviews for various outlets every month, writing your 500 words and being paid your 35 to 60 quid per commission is really a lifestyle that only can only can be sustained for so long, particularly, and then not if you're the breadwinner in a traditional conventional household. So That's one side of it. The other side is what you just said about uh, the uh, in-house critics. You look at the great critics throughout history, the great writers, academics, and even outside of film as well, they almost all have some sort of home base that allows them to, to grow as writers, to build a platform, to build a voice, be that somebody who's the chief critic at a paper or a magazine for many years, be that an academic or somebody who has some primary gig that then allows them to write on the side. Um, I don't think we have within our generation many people who are given that freedom. We all have to hustle. We all have to write probably more than we should you know, we're writing to order and to commission rather than writing because we have something great to say, useful to say. We're hunting for hooks and angles for pitches rather than developing our own areas of expertise. Um, that's quite a bleak outlook. And the other one is I look at all of my favourite critics, the writers I really admire, many of them anyway, and either they live an itinerant lifestyle, like they, they have a flat somewhere, but then they daisy chain several film festivals together where they may be on juries here and there. They maybe writing for variety here, IndieWire there, Sight and Sound there, and they're still doing that into their 40s. Or they are perhaps not as comfortable in terms of their income as you'd like, and they have uh, another family member who's bringing in the bacon. Or they secretly have a job where they're working in PR or marketing, or they are doing freelance work on that side that is actually the stuff that pays the bills, writing production notes, paneling for hosting panels and screenings for new releases. Or they have festival jobs that are seasonal, that keeps them busy and gets them into festivals for parts of the year and then they just have to make up the difference. It's just seeing that that thing where you should always be looking at the person who's a few years older, 10, 15 years older, that you want to be in 10, 15 years. There aren't many opportunities out there. If I was, and I have been in the situation where I've been talking to people at university level or postgrad level, my recommendation is look for where the stable job is, the stable career ladder is, and always maintain the writing, the curating, the programming as something that you do for passion, that maybe that can then become something you grow in confidence in, but you're not then relying on your area of passion and expertise to bring the money in because that just fosters a a competitive and anxious and quite precarious relationship with what you want to do with your life. And I've spoken to people, I'm always really surprised. I don't know if you have many friends and colleagues who are 
30 years older than us, two generations older than us, or even one who, are, who, who have very comfortable jobs that we probably cover. There's a lack of competition. They're, they're so generous and warm. Um, I feel this, and this is not a slight on any of my colleagues within the animation community. We are fighting over the one slot if a Ghibli film comes out. There are 20 people who say they're the biggest Miyazaki fans in the world and ex- experts in the world. And I do not want to feel that I'm in competition with them for those slots. You then talk to somebody who's been around for 20, 30 years more than us. There is a warmth and generosity of spirit that I feel has been squeezed out of those of us who are still under four. 40, over 20, <laughs> part of the hustle, hustling world. And this is sort of, gosh, it's such a massive conversation, isn't it? It's a massive conversation, but it's it's also one where I feel that like the impression of the industry is, is not quite right. And I still feel that with people that I know that are like doing reasonably well with like breaking into it as a field because I think there is this kind of idea that it's all about meeting the right people, going for drinks networking, all of this stuff. I've never met 80% of my editors <laughs> Yeah, and many of the editors are actually quite reclusive people they're happy to just go home at the end of the day they're not there standing outside of screenings chatting, they're not in the WhatsApp groups <laughs> as well. No. That's not really the relationship you should have, yeah. yeah At the end of the day we're in this because films are our friends not people (laughs) that's like that's like small talk Mm, yeah but so uh, to to end on a happier note that's sort of why i've gone in the direction i have the books are a very good thing to keep me sort of in 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 the writing world i do pick up commissions here and there but i identified that what i like doing is audience engagement it's being the concierge you know how in john wick he has that guy he goes through the door and there's the person that welcomes him into the whatever the hotel of the assassins i've not yes. watched i've not watched all the john wick films okay. this is a really bad okay. example doesn't end up well for that guy <laughs> spoiler alert but i've never really been the person who is 20 floors up or down in the visual metaphor of cinema i'm quite happy to be the person who's on the front line whether that is introducing a film talking to a director or a filmmaker in a way that is accessible for audiences who maybe don't know their work so much and then programming as as an element of advocacy for broadening the types of films we see on our screens i'm quite happy to be that person i don't really want to necessarily be the first person to stamp my opinion on a film quite happy not to be that and similarly you know i I don't i don't have a thrill of seeing my name my byline too much i still have i'm I'm not completely (laughs) enlightened in that way but uh, i always recommend to what what is it you really want to do and what how is writing about film an expression of what deep down you want to do i always think back to a a podcast i heard jess kiang on who's one of the great writers and she just says she writes about film because she wants to be a writer you know she might not write about film in 10 years time she might move over to becoming a prose writer or a screenwriter or a poet or something else whatever you know is, is exciting to her so figuring out what we're doing is our way through the uh, the endless discourse of the precarity of our profession i suppose and i love that we are in kind of on paper very different people michael but like what what links us through the thread of this podcast is like i could not agree more with every single element in terms of like what i want out of life (laughs) yeah but yeah we should get on to some people that want some maybe unconventional things out of life uh (laughs) first up it's passages 
A gay couple's marriage is thrown into crisis when one of them impulsively begins a passionate affair with a young woman. So before we get into passages, David Jenkins spoke to the director, Ira Sachs. Well, thank you so much again to, to, for talking to us about your, your new film, Passages. So I guess my first question about this film is, how did you land on the, the Paris setting? It's, yeah. it's a kind of intriguing choice for where all these romantic machinations play out. I have a long history with the city that makes me feel very comfortable there. And I've had relationships there. I've had breakups there. I've had sex there. I've cried there. Um, I have a a relationship to the cinema of France and, and, and the cinemas of Paris that's very intimate. So it just felt very natural for me um, to imagine shooting there and also these characters in a life there, mm-hmm. um, because it sort of feels like a life I have had there. Right. I mean, not technically, but, yeah. <laughs> but in general. So, And that wouldn't be the case of, of, of almost any other city. Like mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say that about London. I wouldn't say that about Berlin. I wouldn't say it about Buenos Aires. I would say it about New York, Paris, and Memphis are three cities that I have had true lives. Yeah. Right. And what, logistically, was it like simple? Was it, was it, how, what was the process like of actually shooting on location in Paris? Because I mean, the traffic is terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID was still present. Mm-hmm. So that those things were difficult. But the process of making a film, I have found it has to do with, with consistency of hiring. I know who I like to work with. I know the types of people I'm looking for. And so I created an environment in which I felt um, very comfortable. You're also in a wonderful place where literally on the weekend, every member of the crew like went out to see the 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 film that was just released that was like the recent Palme d'Or or the, the recent film from Iran or like there's an interest in, in cinema and international cinema and in the kind of movies that I love that's very unique in Paris. Mm-hmm. I can't say the same would be true in New York where everyone would be talking about series. Yeah, I mean, there is that kind of, France in particular seems to have that kind of very much like church and state divide between TV streaming and the mo- the movies that you see in the cinema. Yeah, I, I was thinking recently, could, could I, would it be too aggressive to ban the discussion of a series in my <laughs> life? Like, just say you're not allowed to talk about it. Yes, and I think that that's something as a movie maker i'm interested in like creating freedom and then controlling it so both of those things need to happen like i need to create the possibility for things to happen in front of the camera that will only happen once Mm -hmm. i'm a documentary filmmaker ultimately i'm recording things that are existing in Mm -hmm. real in real space in real time i'm not an animated i'm not making animation Mm -hmm. so i think i approach um fiction from a perspective of like creating events that are as textured and real as I can make them, mm-hmm. and then and then figuring out how to shoot those events. Yeah, that's my job. Can you give a practical example of, in, in terms of passages of of, a, sure. of like a sequence that may be? Well, the opening sequence in which you see the the character Tomas um, shooting a film was ultimately a record of of the actor Franz playing a director shooting a film, and the director Ira directing Franz and the and a second crew who were playing a film crew, but who were also shooting the movie mm-hmm. that Franz was shooting. Wow. <laughs> so that's a place where, like, ultimately what worked is that a movie was being shot and we were recording it. It was a movie that would never be made because it's a fictional movie that has no 
screen. Like the Tomas's movie doesn't exist, but it but you have to believe it exists. Yeah. So I had to build everything. And when you watch the extras in that scene, for example, they knew Franz was the actor playing the director. Mm-hmm. They knew there was another person who was me directing that scene. Mm-hmm. But when Franz is yelling at them, they're really scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and hopefully they don't feel, you know, hopefully it was I think it was fun for them because there was a lot of tension on the set, but the tension was totally real Mm. because you don't, you want them to forget that they're in a fiction. Yeah. That's every, that's, that's what I'm trying to do for all the actors. So they don't have to imagine a world that isn't right there in front of them. Yeah. I mean, and I guess the two films are very different films. You and Franz, uh, you and Thomas being very different types of directors, I imagine. That's right. And I, I like that you're, you're, you're confusing the name. Tomas and from yes, and I am as well, and I think that's one of the qualities of the movie we've made in the cinema that I love is that you can't quite tell where one begins and the other ends. Mm-hmm. And part of that is that I've asked the actors not to transform. What what in a way creates the characters is the dialogue and the costumes, and then everything else comes through them mm-hmm. in the simplest way. So I don't rehearse before we start shooting. I try not to talk about anything subtextual because that creates this kind of environment of theater instead of of cinema. For me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I always think about Sidney Lumet, who was a great naturalistic film director who rehearsed everything to a T, like for weeks he did rehearsals. And somehow he got something that seems like life also. Um, And and by the way, fake things can seem like life. Like Fassbender seems like life, Mm. but it's not realism. No. <laughs> on that note, I mean, it's interesting to read what, what with Fassbinder. It's a lot of the reviews of the film, the people, people kind of watching this film and writing about it have picked up on a kind of like Fassbinder reference. And mm. I guess that's the film Beware of a Holy Hall, mm. where he plays this kind of I love that film. film, like you know, diabolical film director who is manipulating everyone right. on the set. And and I guess even Fra- even Franz's character feels a bit like well, it's German. Yeah, indeed, and he's German. Weird. And he and he and he ha- and he's also quite manipulative. And I wondered how you know because you know you're someone who I guess you have these sort of inspirational touch point films when you when you make yes. your films. And yeah, I wondered. We I guess I wondered if how, if or how Fassbinder. Fassbender was mostly influential for this film in terms of costume. Like I shared images of, um, I mean, Adele wears a, a white dress at some point, which is probably for my costume designer, my wonderful costume designer, Hadija Zagai, inspired by a shot of Hannah Shagula in Beware of Holy Warner. Like she looks like yeah. her. So I, I, we were interested in like the power of the movie star artificially um, and iconically. So looking at Hannah, my friend Hannah, mm-hmm. I wish, um, and looking at Bridget Bardot and looking at Jean Moreau, these these figures of cinema. So instead of costuming um, these three characters in kind of the everyday world of Paris in 2023, we were thinking of them as figures of cinema. Mm-hmm. So we were elevating them. Adele is, is literally costumed like Bridget Bardot. Mm-hmm. And and her and and the camera is interested in her in the shape of her body as mm-hmm. Lucy Spardo. Franz, I think about Nestor Alamandro shooting Eric Romer films because mm-hmm. the two of them together were the horniest bastards. <laughs> I mean, when you think about their movies, yeah. If you think about My Night at Mods, if you think about well, I'm thinking about what's the one with Claire's knee? No, Claire's knee is is perverse to yeah. the point of 
danger. No, I'm thinking about the one. I think I know the one you mean. Yes, I can see every image because the images are 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 made by two men who are really interested in skin and body. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that I take from. And you think of Eric Lemaire; he was an old man mm-hmm. by the time he made. It. I mean, he was quite old, older than me even. Mm-hmm. And and I'm old, so I think that like cinema that understands the pleasure. Chantal Ackerman, another mm-hmm. example, like understand. Taxi Zoom Clo was very important to the making of this film. It's a film that seems strangely to have been lost, and it's yeah. actually like a, it's such an original and unique work that it should be reclaimed and, and it should be shared. I, I think all of these films made were important to me because I wanted to make a film of pleasure. And I think pleasure is, mm-hmm. is, is really what I'm... I'm literally trying to like pleasure the audience. Yeah. That's interesting you say that because I've had some really fascinating discussions with people who've seen the film um, and it's a really fascinating film to talk about afterwards mm. and specifically talking about how we feel about the characters and their actions mm-hmm. and i think specifically thomas mm-hmm. and i've had some really fascinating conversations where there are people who who really hate who like think he's this kind of narcissist chaotic he's manipulative and he you know he has all these kind of you know, he, 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 he's sort of in total, there's just negative qualities. Mm. And, but I've, I've, I've had people, who, and, and actually I think I fall on this part myself where I, there is something quite moving and tragic about his, like almost like a kind of addict where he, mm. he, mm-hmm. he, he can't quite con- control these impulses. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. And, and I wondered if, if, like, could you tell me a bit about this, like, how you envisage this character and where he sits on this empathy scale for you, maybe, mm. if that's something you even want to talk about. To me, it's, 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 um, it's, it's more, I feel that my interest as a, as a, as a narrator is in, um, creating portraiture. So I don't ask whether I like the person mm-hmm. or don't ask. It's whether I've depicted them with complexity and empathy mm-hmm. and depth. So I, I always think, like, when you ask a question like that, I think about Henry James. Like, have, you know, so a monster, meaning I can never achieve what Henry James achieved, I, but I can, I can try to create a portrait of, of, a, of, a, of a man or of women or of characters that, that, that seems like they exist in the world. And that they have forever in the past and will forever in the future. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, specifically, the character was inspired by um, the the uh, uh, this the protagonist in the last film of Visconti, mm-hmm. um, which is called The Innocent, and played by Giancarlo Giannini. Okay, and he plays an aristocrat. So there, there you have power, who has um, a beautiful mistress and a beautiful wife, and. Um, in the course of the film, he discovers that his beautiful wife has a beautiful lover. And so he then becomes consumed with passion for the woman he, he had, ne- had neglected. Yeah. And in doing so, it leads to his downfall mm-hmm. in, a, in a way that's, that's pleasurable for the audience, mm-hmm. right? Because we are watching someone who seems to be impenetrable that is actually being punctured. The mm. film is a form of puncturing. 
So it's not a form of it's not a film of like admiration necessarily, but also at the simultaneously we're taking great pleasure in that person's power and in their liberty and in and the things that they can do that we can't do. Mm-hmm. They're sociopathic qualities we're taking pleasure in. Um, so that's maybe more yeah. how I think about it. Yeah, and, yeah. and 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 I will say um, I know directors that are that are more like Tomas than I am, but mm-hmm. I'm not not like Tomas, mm-hmm. and I don't think I'm unique as a man. Well, I think I, I from may, maybe this an impression I get from from interviewing directors is that there are a lot of filmmakers who maybe are, are like Tomas when they're directing, and then they're like Martin. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> when right. they're not directing, <laughs> right? Well, I think maybe they they are vulnerable and human and they have needs mm-hmm. which is something that you're seeing in and i think all the characters mm-hmm. in the film if i if i'm doing my job right yeah yeah definitely um i want to ask you a question now that's a bit that's sort of like a bit i guess a bit more general about your i guess your formative experiences when you were young yes. and when you were kind of like get like being like in first being inspired by film i wondered if you could remember back to if there was a point in your youth where you where cinema was you know you deemed it as something important or maybe even something that you thought ah this is a medium that i feel like i might want to express myself um it's funny because as you were asking that question i was thinking are you talking about when i was six are you talking about when i was 18 are you talking about when i was 30 like i because you uh, have these things. well i think that that young is an interesting word yeah, you get to be 57 you're yeah. not sure like <laughs> What what is young? So I th- I think what you're talking about is when did I know that cinema was the direction that I wanted to go yeah, yeah. in my life? And I would say specifically in in 1986, I lived in Paris and I didn't speak French very well and I didn't have any friends and I wasn't in school. How did you find yourself? I was a university student in the U.S. and and I just took a semester off mm-hmm. and, and and lived in France. So I was kind of at a loss to how to feel not alone. And I ended up going to movies two or three times a day. And I saw 197 movies in three months. And then I was just like, that was it. I mean, I was just so fulfilled in the movie theater. And I was also really turned on. Like that continues to be something like I was excited. I was stimulated. And I, it was also a point of discovery. So there were these discoveries of I'd never seen a John Cassavetes film at that point. I'd never seen a Vincent Minnelli film. I'd never seen, this was the first time Pila's Police came out. Mm-hmm. And Ackerman's The Year 80s came out. And like, I was seeing a lot of things for the first time that were unlike anything I'd ever seen before. It's interesting you say you, you're seeing these kind of seminal American filmmakers. Yeah. You had, you had to go to Europe to find them. Well, they weren't. I mean, I didn't grow up in a city of rep houses. The rep houses I saw, I did see this that in Memphis, Tennessee, there were rep houses and mm-hmm. they had calendars. I mean, you probably before this time there was always double features yeah, yeah this was like this thing and i did see like the treasure of sierra madre and i saw all the 70s movies in the first run so i saw dog day afternoon i saw death wish i saw Patton, i saw the conversation i you know and i was like 12 and 14 and that was kind of where my father took us on saturday afternoons so let's to see whatever was playing wow so I already had a real like going to the movies was part of was part of life and i think that's that's what I'm trying to do as a parent is create with my kids this idea that movies of a wide range and are are kind of part of their lives. Mm-hmm. And that's been interesting. 
How long after that before you actually were thinking, well, I'm going to... Well, I was a theater director since I was 16. Uh So I I started, I worked in a, as a kid, I I was, I mean, that didn't work, but I was part of a children's theater in Memphis and I um, was an actor, a very bad actor from when I was, was like in like 11 and 12. And yeah. by the time I was 16, I was directing theater. So throughout college, I was a theater director. I already knew the pleasure of doing things collaboratively, putting on a show. The Mickey Rooney, like Judy Garland concept of let's put on a show uh-huh. is something that I gravitate towards. And I also have an affinity. I'm good collaborator. Mm-hmm. Like I'm good at action. I think that's, I'm good because I'm, I'm pretty quick in figuring out what people might want to feel empowered and inspired and free. And what about an encounter with a camera, maybe? Uh, do, you, do you remember a, f- a first time when you kind of had a, what you might see as a kind of meaningful encounter with a camera and thought, yes, this makes yeah, sense? Yeah, I mean, I think it was my, fr- I applied to five film schools when I was a, a senior in college and I didn't get in to, to any of them. Why? I would say the same reason I, you know, I don't have a career that's like, I don't have a can Venice career. Mm. I think exclusionary tactics. I was a queer activist. Mm-hmm. I was a gay activist. I wrote my essay on the son of Mussolini, oh, okay. who was sent to Hollywood to learn the Hollywood system and then come back and make fascist films. And I used that as a as an allegory for someone who was interested in political cinema, mm-hmm. going to film school in order to use the means to dismantle. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was like, I was in that mode. And I was thinking of like the, the filmmaker, like I was obsessed with Fassbender mm-hmm. and I wanted to go to USC. Like these are, in, these are oppositional. Yeah. Oh, re- okay. Right. What? I mean, I don't know. I wasn't on a committee. I wasn't in rooms, <laughs> but also I was like a loud gay man mm-hmm. who wanted to make films about love and sex as I knew it. Mm-hmm. And you tell me I didn't get in. So I don't know. But so I ended up just sort of skipping that stage. I yeah. moved to New York. I met people like Kelly Reichard and Larry Fessenden and Jonathan Nossiter and Oren Moverman and Karima News and a lot of people who were like in that city to make art. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I felt inspired and I felt things were possible. And I made my first film called Vaudeville, which was a short film that happened to be 55 minutes. So okay. I just made what I wanted to make. And I had privilege as a person and how, how did that come about is that was that part was that a sort of self-started thing or was yeah that- i just had been making theater and then i just started making films so i just went from one to the other and, and i was able to do that um, what was it filmed on it was on 16 millimeter black and white it's not bad i mean it actually has these elements of this that are that are so part of what i'm doing today mm-hmm. like so essentially similar and aligned with what how i make movies now but I will say that after I made it, I worked for a man named Eric Bogosian, who was an artist and former writer and, and now an actor and all these things. And, and he said to me, Ira, you need to stop watching Cassavetes. Like he told me to stop watching Cassavetes. And it was, I got it because he was just like, all I was, the only way I was learning was by imitation. Uh-huh. And that's still my process. And I, really what happened is I didn't stop watching Cassavetes for any other reason that I discovered Ken Loach. And then I was more interested. And then I discovered PLA, and I never, I, I just stayed there. But just now I'm going back to Ken Loach. Oh, interesting. Going back to Looks and Smiles and Family Life specifically, which I, and Kess, but, but, but specifically Looks and Smiles and Family Life are movies that I find have a way of looking at the world that I feel very close to. On that note, then, as a final thing, I'm, I'm you know, going back to this idea of you 
having these sort of touchstone films sometimes that you kind of inspire you. You know, talking of Ken Loach, do you see yourself ever making like a, a very overtly political film? Like these films your dad took you to the 70s, mm, into mm. the 70s, the patterns and the... Mm. Well, I think my films are as political as Patton. I'm not sure they're the same kind of politics as Loach. Mm. I mean, they're films of of culture and class and society and and conflict. Mm. So I think that they, I mean, again, is Henry James political? Like, so my yeah. my 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 heroes are people who are who are curious and in investigating the the effect of power. On, on everyday life. I, I guess talking of political, maybe maybe political is the wrong word because I think you're absolutely right, your films are political, but what I mean that it is maybe something that is like dealing with a contemporary event. You know, like I think Ken Loach's films now in particular well, Ken, are very yeah. kind of tapped into like this is a reaction to this policy or this thing. Um I think Ken Loach is probably his education is deeper in a in a truly political sense than mine is so i think he comes to that very naturally mm-hmm. i feel like i'm i would be i would be a better psychoanalyst than a than a politician mm-hmm. like my uh relationship to the world is more one of observation and analysis mm-hmm. than of commentary mm-hmm. i agree that's i mean that's good news for everyone <laughs> But, um, I don't know. I mean, it's also I'm just as I'm speaking, I'm speaking like as a man of privilege. So that's also who I am, right? And I'm I'm not sure that's that's part of. I mean, like in a way, I would say I'm. I mean, I'm not an aristocrat, but I I some ways relate more to a Visconti mm-hmm. than to a Loach in terms of like my relationship to the world. That's a terrible thing to say, but it's hard. <laughs> I mean, I just feel like I'm here in this 10th floor in this London and like I'm white and you're white and everybody here is white and, and we have, I'm staying in a nice hotel. I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot of luxury, that's, which is, which is appalling, but it's like, that's kind of the, my conflict with that, which is both my pleasure and my, and some sort of like reflection is really central to passages. It's yeah. like, what do men do who have things that are, that they don't necessarily deserve, and then, and then, what do they do with other people? Well, I mean, you know, I think with, even with Visconti, you're like he's he's depicting his world. You know, it's his it's his, it's his own. And by the way, Visconti world. was a homosexual in that world, mm-hmm. which puts him in a certain a, a different position, indeed, than than, than somebody else. So. Well, thank you so much for yeah. that lovely yeah, lovely chat. So, Michael, I've got to assume that in your life you've had many competitions for your affection, <laughs> like lots of kind of you're being drawn from different places. Everybody's after you. Like, so passages must have been very relatable. Oh, yes, of course. I'm always find my <laughs> find myself in sexy menage a trois type triangles. <laughs> Although this has been, I guess, falsely built as a love triangle, isn't it? It's not really, what would you call it? What is the shape? I love why? <laughs> yeah, because it is more Thomas, who's the film director, who's the main character, Franz Rogowski, who is ping-ponging back and forth, I suppose, between his partner Martin, Ben Wishaw, and then Agat. Adele, uh, Exarchopolis. So yeah, whatever that is, that's not a triangle. There are elements, emotional connections potentially between Martin and Agat that appear later in the film, but they're not swapping beds in that way. 
this film, I mean, Iris Axe is the director and co-writer and I, I love his films. He's been making films for 30 plus years now and he's had a good run quite recently, maybe making more approachable comedy drama type films. He made Little Men a few years ago, Love is Strange before that with the all-timer on-screen couple pairing of Alfred Molina and John Lithgow as aging gay men, and then made Frankie a few years ago at Cannes, which I don't think really hit with critics. That was an ensemble family drama. But Passages is very consciously him connecting with the sort of queer cinema that made his name with an independent spirit that made his name in the sort of late 90s, 2000s with films like Keep the Light On and his connection with a younger generation because he's getting on a bit in, in years. He's late 50s, 60s. And so casting young, sexy actors uh, rather than your John Lithgow's and your Alfred Molina's as, uh, as, as director surrogates. And this is a really fascinating film. One thing I will say, and it's always something that comes up time and again on, pod, on the podcast when we review, is it's very hard to have definitive opinions on films sometimes when you want to immediately watch them again. And this is a film that um, I think has been overshadowed a little bit by the way that it was rated in the States. It was given an NC-17 rating based on its sex scenes in a very, I mean, call it what it is, homophobic way, because there are gay love scenes in this between two men. Not necessarily explicit. And NC-17... No, they're not explicit at all, I would say. NC-17 brings with it a sense that it's pornographic in some way, not at all, or, um, or excessive in some way, not at all. So... It has developed this tagline of it being some sort of steamy love triangle, LGBTQ romance type thing. But instead, it's a really smart, quite devastating, quite patient character study of these three characters, but focusing most on Franz Rogowski's character at a point in his life where there is this drifting between potential relationships but as as it goes on you just come to come to realize that this guy is a real <laughs> a real monster perhaps of a person something that really brought the performance into quite sharp focus for me as Arisak saying um he viewed the performance as being like James Cagney an incredibly compelling psychopath <laughs> Who's doing quite horrible things, but is doing it in such a slick and, you know, quite quite uh, attractive way that you don't realise that's what they're doing. In, in in the film, Franz Rogowski's character is really self-serving whilst pursuing these romantic intentions between, between these two characters at varying times. Yeah, quite something to get your head around because it's so slow moving and slow and slowly unfurling as well. What did you make of it, Layla? I mean, it's, it's 90 minutes. So I mean, it's not that slow, but I feel like it was marketed entirely wrong to me because I, I watched it recently, but, you know, it kind of premiered, I believe, at Cannes. So I'd kind of heard this reputation about this, like, oh, how steamy, how sexy, how erotic this thing is. As much as we kind of like lament the loss of the erotic thriller, this kind of felt like a thriller to me in the sense of like, how easily someone that is extremely relatable can like tip into sociopathy. (laughs) Like, like there's something quite nightmarish about him in that he is so relatable in the beginning. And then I think Ira Sachs has that sort of pace with it. He doesn't kind of overstay his welcome. Also, there's no kind of next beat that isn't believable. And like the sort of mess that it ends up with is yeah weirdly weirdly plausible in a way that's like I suppose pretty upsetting but I was surprised that this was kind of constantly marketed to me as being like the sexy film of the year and I 
was like devastated for most of it. Yeah, I must admit, in my head, I get it mixed up with the other Love Triangle film, the one that's been... The it, tennis one? It, what's that called? It's another f- single word title, isn't challenges. it? Challenges. <laughs> yeah, Challenges and Passages. <laughs> yeah, well, Challenges is related to 2024 because um, the strikes are a nightmare. So, like, you have a little bit of time to get your head around that. But I, I, I think we'll come back to this in the film club. This is the sort of film that has that wisdom and uh, emotional maturity and observational maturity that um, comes with age. Whereas perhaps we can talk about Julie Jim and uh, Francois Truffaut later, but he, he knows what to focus on. And it's really surprising what he does focus on. It's all about body language. He, he, in, in an interview I read, he referred to it as an action film, if he had to put a genre on it, because he sees it as collisions of characters and bodies. Because in, in, the, in the opening scene, well, not the opening scene, the sort of second scene, it's sort of the rap party for a film that um, Tomas has just directed and it's in a club and you, there are two encounters uh, it's Tomas and Martin and then Agat and her sort of fling um, where one person wants to, ha- to to dance and the other one doesn't and it's just this sort of the, the, the body language and the choreography of characters within space just speaks volumes without the film really overly narrating or overly telling the story about what these characters are doing. And it's the film in miniature because it is these characters drifting between each other and time passing in ways that are quite unremarked on. You, you, know, you don't really know how long this has been going on for while relationships build and break down it's really something and i don't think i've ever spoken with anybody about franz rogowski i know that he's very popular with some of our friends and colleagues of course he's in christian petzold movies he's in all sorts of stuff he's done a couple of english language performances as well what's your take on him because to, to some he's the sexiest man alive i i, I think at least that's what I've gathered. Okay. Well, I mean, I don't want to kind of objectify the man, but like to me, he seems almost like a sort of Midsummer Night's Dream puck of sexuality, where it's kind of like you're both crystallizing gender roles and subverting them at the same time. Because I think that's what's kind of interesting about this film, where it's like, in theory, he is a person that is like moving within his sexual desire and kind of being free of gender but then is also quite like rigidly held by like the expectations of different gender roles. And and that feels like something that only an actor like Franz Rogowski would be capable of. But I mean, if you're just asking if he's hot, yes, yes. No, no, of course. I, I just, what, what is the, because what he's doing here that's so fascinating, he reminds me a lot of David Thewlis in Naked, the Mike Lee film. There's some mm-hmm. like, unearthly black magic type not whatever it is whether that's sexiness or presence or something that that in his performance which as as it as as the film goes on you realize is how he is you know affecting in a negative way all his relationships but there there is some real magnetism there in 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 what he's doing and i suppose i just want i I, I suppose he he just has something about him that's like about a spirit being like contained if that makes sense like but he's got an otherworldliness but also one that kind of very he's very good at kind of portraying that being boxed in if that makes sense i mean i don't know if that even makes sense fingers crossed for listeners it does um. <laughs> but it's, it's it's a fascinating one i think we're getting so into the weeds a little bit with the conversation because it does it does just go into that landscape of emotion and character and relationship in a unexpected way and that's why i said i would want to have another run at it because if you read the, the plot synopsis or follow the film on its plot level it may come across like a um not midlife. He's, he's he's not 
that that told in this film, but it's a sort of bisexuality coming out story to begin with because he's surprised by an attraction and, and a night spent with a woman and then comes out as that to his husband and that creates a little bit of a tension. And Ben Whishaw's great in this. I love the the way that the film composes the energies of the three central actors. Franz Grosky, as you say, is, has this power. Ben Whishaw is so, I don't want to say mannered because it makes it seem like a negative but he's so straight-laced and um, British <laughs> yeah, <he's laughs> compared got to a, the others. He's got a brittleness where I really like appreciated how Ira Sachs just like lets him go in this one monologue. He just kind of unleashes a pain upon Thomas on Franz's character, which just, you know, stabs you in the heart and then like twists it because he has been so restrained and so mannered in every moment beforehand. And yeah, I mean, to me coming into it in some ways, Ben Whishaw seemed not like the weakest person, but perhaps the most conventional one. And it was really exciting to see him do something that was a little bit more, both like in terms of gender and sexuality, but also in terms of just like where he breaks and where he doesn't. Very interesting as a character. Yeah, and I suppose it's unfortunate that we just have a relationship with him perhaps more because he's British and he's Paddington's voice and all the things that he is. Uh, we're, we're coming into it with all that baggage, perhaps, that he's got to work against that. But um, And in terms of just to get onto the sex scene thing, I think that this film, if I could recommend it for many reasons, it's a brilliant response to all of that Twitter activity, blown out of proportion and straw manned out of proportion, about sex scenes not being important or being irrelevant to the plot. So much is, is shown in these scenes uh, about who is... You know who's in charge, who's not in charge, who you know, the relationships. They're shot in a very interesting way that is often from the behind of the characters. It's all there's lots of back muscles in this film. <laughs> you get to see a lot of that architecture if that's your kind of thing. Mm, I but feel like I should get a fan, it, Michael. Oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it tells you so much about where the characters are at that point in their journey um, and how that that sort of connection is used as a weapon perhaps or as a, as a, as a as ammunition within the battle that is this ongoing relationship really like if anybody was frustrated by that conversation if they are very online in the way that some of us are this is a perfect tonic for that i think very true not to kind of get the discourse starting again but michael why haven't they made paddington 3 why have they made william Funke? <laughs> what's happening with ben wishaw's agent what's i have oh, you <laughs> I mean, I saw the trailer for Wonka. That's a wild film. Why would you make that? Who, who really needs that question answered and that story told? And I feel bad because what's great about Paddington was seeing so many of the greats of British big and small screen and stage coming together and being in so many different roles. And they've just done the same. So now it's going to be quite embarrassing to see Hugh Grant as the uh, umpa lumper. Yeah. <laughs> Well, at least Ben Whishaw is um, not being embarrassed by, you know, I don't know, playing Augustus Gloop or something. Exactly. Should, should, we, should we do our scores at least? Sorry to Let's take that. that. I just had to ask. Um, so in anticipation, enjoyment and in retrospect. I think this is going to be a 4-3-4 four, four with that asterisk saying... I really think this has the potential to go up on a second viewing. And it's I've really thoroughly enjoyed reading about this afterwards. And only a three because it's that unfolding sort of film. And also I'm never sure with the anticipation and in retrospect, I don't think I ever answered this myself, whether it's in anticipation is moment to moment of the film 
And then in retrospect is as you're walking out of the cinema, actually, that was a four. <laughs> so that's what I'd say with potential to go up on a second watch, I think. Well, you know, it's not an exact science, as you all know. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a three, four, four. I'm, I'm always slightly suspicious of anything that anybody tells me is like incredibly sexy, even though, you know, big fan of Aristotle's previous work with this cast is absolutely stacked. But yeah, pleasantly surprised that it was like a little bit more than just eroticism i suppose like or I, or I was really very moved by a lot of it next up it's the first slam dunk ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us we brought in a reverse auctioneer which is apparently a thing Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Following the footsteps of his older brother, who is a famous local player from a young age, Ryoto Miyagi always plays with brains and lightning speed, running circles around his opponents while feigning composure. In his second year of high school, Ryota plays with Chihoku High School basketball team and takes to the stage of the Inter High School National Championship. So Michael, this has got like quite a background. This was a very beloved manga, as I understand. Yeah, so, well, this is the thing. They've called it the first slam dunk for a reason. You don't need to know any of this backstory. Of course, it helps, maybe. But yeah, let's, let's, let's do a little potted history. So this was a massive manga and anime series in the 1990s. One of the best-selling manga series of all time in Japan. Hundreds of millions of copies sold and came along at the right time that it was such a cultural sensation that it pretty much galvanised the interest in basketball in Japan to the point where the national body of basketball in Japan gave a special citation to the creator of the manga saying thank you for supporting our sport and making it into an international going concern, which is wild, right? The Anime series in the mid-late 90s didn't adapt the whole of the manga, and so there's always been this sort of ellipsis sort of trailing off, and fans have always wanted more. And the, the creator of the manga, Takiko Inoue, um, was given the opportunity to, to develop a new feature film, and this has been in development or whatever, so it's been in a decade or so, while he was figuring out what approach he'd want to take to it. And then this has finally come along and was a smash hit in Japan, as we'd mentioned. The 
is it the second highest grossing Japanese film of all time in Korea? Huge hit in China yeah. as well. I think fifth fifth of all time in Japan or something like that. Yeah, in terms of anime features. Yeah. So so if we, we, we tend to think of Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki's films as the highest grossing anime films worldwide. That's changing now. So if this is now the fifth highest grossing, uh, only Spirited Away from Ghibli is ahead of it. So that's grossed more than Ponyo. It's grossed more than Howl's Moving Castle, all those films. So there is a new wave of feature length Japanese animation that is really, it is the blockbuster cinema in Japan. Nothing else comes close to touching it and has then also become a major sort of blockbuster cinema across Asia as well. And so that's a lot of like industry backstory. I always always try not to focus too much on how big a film is in Japan when talking about anime film, because that can sometimes colour expectations. But this is such an approachable film. It was really created to be, if you know the characters from the manga and the anime, you might get something extra from it. But really it is just one key basketball match played out over fe- over the feature length runtime with each of the members of the team having their own little personal thing to get through adventures emotional journeys to go through while the match is going on which is a very interesting way of framing a sports movie right because um you think about the great sports movies usually there are the team comes together they're misfits there are training montages there's the early successes and then the rivals and then the final match is what the final act would be whereas this is just one basketball match for the entire two-hour runtime it's quite a mm. chunky film Freezes fine. <laughs> <laughs> well i think it does so I, I saw this back at the beginning of summer where it seemed that this was going to be bad summer for blockbusters. I think I saw this before Spider-Verse. So it was when The Flash had come out and Indiana Jones had underperformed and the Fast and Furious film stalled on arrival in Western markets. And then you go and see something like this, and I can completely understand how this could become a word-of-mouth blockbuster success. It's such a an energising movie, a real popcorn film. I saw it in a particularly good cinema where with every bounce of the basketball the room shook and the soundtrack is this pumping industrial electronic rock soundtrack i could really imagine if you saw this in uh, not, not to do down um british audiences but if you saw this with an opening night american basketball fan crowd where they are generally more um more vocal this could be the sort of thing where people would be whooping and hollering in the aisles because it is such a for me anyway i, I think this is real popcorn entertainment. It did make me question whether maybe basketball is perhaps the most cinematic sport. I'm a huge fan of Hoop Dreams. I've maybe, you know, it's like four hours long, but I've maybe seen it six times in my entire life. But there there seems to be like a sort of propulsion to basketball that really suits cinema. Absolutely. And it's that um, tension and release that it comes with it as well. You know, there's the, the moments of like going from being standing still to bursting into action there's the tension of the ball in flight is it going to bounce on the rim is it going to go straight through is it whatever all these things and it's a high scoring game as well compared to this something that north american sports fans can't get their head around with football slash soccer it's like how can you watch a match for 90 minutes and it'd be nil nil at the end (laughs) well but also i have to say i watch the film any given sunday and like american football does not lend itself to the the cinema experience i would say but i suppose american sports split down the middle into the pastime sport and the, the the action sport and like hockey and 
basketball are fast-paced, baseball and American football are take your hot dogs for a whole afternoon, settle in. Um, so, but that's another, probably another angle on this film is that it teaches you, I think, enough about how basketball works and what they're doing while also injecting it with quite a bit of video game logic maybe um some of the things that the basketball players do on on the court are quite superhuman at least portrayed as that so that you're following the emotion of the sport rather than necessarily needing to know the the specifics of the tactics i'd be really intrigued to know Layla, what you thought about the look of the film because this is something that's been within the animation community quite intriguing to see played out because Japan and Japanese cinema is currently going through this transition away from traditional 2D hand-drawn or computers being used to look hand-drawn animation um, like we'd see in Studio Ghibli and then using computer graphics and 3D models that has that, you know traditionally now in the last 25 years been the preserve of American studios like Pixar, DreamWorks, etc. Japanese animation hasn't really had many great successes combining the two or finding their own style within two and I think this this is the first one that popularly has been accepted as finding that middle ground. And what they do is for all of the character moments that happen off the courts when, you know, the point guard is remembering the first time he was on a basketball court with his long deceased brother by the sea. And it's this beautiful emotional moment. That stuff is done in 2D animation, like a like the sort of anime that we'd know and love. And everything on the court is... Um, this 3D CG style where they are 3D models with a sort of overlay that makes them look like manga characters come to life. And that's being used because it's just, if you're thinking about people with their actual wrists and fingers drawing some of the stuff that they have to do in terms of throwing the camera around, these whip pans and zooms and multiple characters on court moving around at the same time, it's just impossible to to do. So that's why they've implemented computer technology here and i think to quite dazzling effect but what did you make of that stuff as somebody who had, you've seen animation you've uh, your fair share but what did you make of that well I, I mean maybe this is because of uh, two podcast hosts on the same program but like i think that's quite a leading question michael i thought it was excellent <laughs> it's my surname <laughs> i'm allowed to ask leading questions <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I to me, I, I suppose it's the thing where in like a still you can kind of see how that works. But um, because this is such a film that is about motion because of the nature of it, that it's about sport and like basketball, which is such a kind of particularly like kinetic sport. Like those things did come together in a, in a very pleasingly fluid way. Where you know, as I you know, I don't know as much about animation as as many people, but those those at least gelled together in a way where it felt like in motion it still worked, which I imagine would be the kind of trickier element for it to meld. Yeah, and it's it's quite fascinating that it's coming at this time where American animation is embracing its cartooniness and its handcraftedness. So like with Spider-Verse earlier this year and um, the, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem movie where they really didn't look anything like what you consider conventional Western CG animation. They were really embracing expressionism and going off model and introducing different looks and styles and tones to then see J- Japanese animation, which is so often held up as the most expressive and most imaginative and crafted animation around embracing CG. And I will say it takes a few minutes to get used to because there, there feels like there's a little bit of Botox going on with the characters to begin with. They're not as maybe as uh, you know, move, as much 
movement as you'd expect in the faces and the Some of us want to say beautiful forever, Michael. How dare you judge us? <laughs> Sorry. The, the crowds as well feel like it's sort of FIFA 99 sort of era technology copy-pasting models across the, the stands. But it really is wonderful and it does introduce elements of real have these has these uh, these uh, authorial interventions throughout like what you'd expect in manga like impact shots and these lines drawn across the frame that really accentuate movement and impact but moments like the opening sequence of the film where an invisible hand draws the characters as pencil sketches and they go through one of the the basic elements of animation, which is a walking cycle. And you see like all of the team members side by side and how they their gait and how they carry themselves and then they become fully fledged animated characters. It has flourishes like that that right up until the final minutes um keeps surprising you well i'd like to see this in 4dx i'd like to see how they'd oh my god i'd love that please host that screening yeah (laughs) i mean i I, again i don't have like the level of expertise that you do in this field but i do feel like a lot of my favorite animation did take me a few minutes to kind of adjust to just because it was kind of doing something that was like not entirely expected but one of Japan's most successful films, it's like, you know, a pretty beloved property. I mean, what are your scores going to be? Yeah, I'm going to give this 5-5-4. Five, five, <gasps> a 5 um, from Michael Leader? You're joking. <laughs> I mean, now I don't host it. I don't care. I'm just going to throw throw numbers around. Because I've been chasing the high of watching this film ever since seeing it. And I saw it three months ago now, uh, the beginning of the summer. And as I said, I spoke to a, a couple of colleagues on the way out. I would have happily gone straight back into the film, um, even though by that point it was, what, half eight, nine o'clock. If, if you're looking for spectacle level cinema, uh, animation or otherwise, this has got it. I've only given it a four because it just lingers because in the mind. Because Michael Leader, that... you couldn't possibly <laughs> I love how discerning you are. I'm giving it a four only because it has only lived in the mind as that experience in the cinema rather than necessarily inspiring some great rethink of my whole life like other films may do. So, um, yes, I'm being a bit mean, perhaps. I can't give all fives. No, I've been informed by um, David Jenkins that I'm only allowed to give things a in uh, retrospect five if I can genuinely argue that it changed my life. So, yeah, probably falls across the board for me. Maybe it was a tiny bit, not overhyped, but I was kind of presented with this being like the film that was going to like absolutely blow my brain out of the back of my head and it it, it it was fantastic it was absolutely fantastic i will be very excited to watch it again i would happily like read a million think pieces about this but yeah i mean it, it it's very difficult to meet those expectations so probably for like five four four um yes but still like the state of animation this year seems to be in a very good place when it comes to like those big, not that it was ever not, but like in terms of those big blockbuster titles, we, we kind of started with the absolute abyss that was Super Mario Brothers and things picked up. Yeah. So I think every film I've seen this year, be it Spider-Verse, Mutant Mayhem and this, I'm very happy to err on the side of overpraising them because they are being released in the shadow of Super Mario Brothers, which I really see as the nadir of animated storytelling. <laughs> you know, that, or, that's a film. I mean, that, or of storytelling. I think that would be fair. <laughs> well, absolutely. Well, just 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 because that film is adapting a video game series that is wonder contained in a cartridge. 
and inspired the imaginations of generations of kids the Mario Brothers games continues to. And they turned it into fluff to dazzle the kiddies in half term and said, is that good enough? And obviously it was, billion dollars. But those films since are really showing what animation can do and what cinema can do. Uh, I mean, the only thing I would give it was that it was sub 90 minutes. But I mean, that is a really damning with faint praise. (sighs) Well, next up, it's Film Club. Jules and Jim explores the 30-year friendship between Austrian biologist Jules and Parisian writer Jim and the love triangle formed when the alluring Catherine makes the duo a trio. This was a very interesting film to me, Michael. I watched it for the first time. I kind of had a vision of it and in my mind it was a little bit like Passages and I kind of wasn't expecting, I suppose, the great war of it all. <laughs> like... mm, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, even in that synopsis, I feel that Jules A. Jim, because he is a Jim, as they say in the, in the, in, in the dialogue of the film, he's got a duh on the front when you pronounce it. Th- there are, there are two separate films almost within the film and within how it's been rem- remembered. There's the first 30 minutes where all the formal innovations of the French New Wave that Francois Truffaut was at the forefront of are all contained within that. And also the common memory of this film, the memes and the pictures that you're likely to see, the clips and video essays of them running around Paris and making it their own. That's all within the first 30 minutes or so. The rest of the film is what seems to be less talked about, and that's this 30-year span of a will-they-won't-they toxic love triangle the femme fatale character i suppose she is she says that in the song catherine makes up halfway through the film and ultimately the the the, the tragedy of it is sort of forgotten in the sort of spirit of youth that it's seen as embodying the majority of the film it's a really interesting one because i think that within truffaut's filmography he made this a couple of years after making the 400 blows which i think still is an amazing film an electrifying film this is the one that was more popular and made his name at the time but i don't think works as well and even himself i've got a quote i could read out he saw that he failed with this film he was in conversation with lillian ross at the new yorker who is one of my favorite writers and he said the first half hour is the best the rest of it should have been as good <laughs> uh, the book it was based on by Henri Pierre Rocher was truly a hymn to life. The author wrote it when he was 74. Up to then, he'd spent all his time living. I wanted the picture too to be a hymn to life, but I'm not as sure it's as complete as the book. Perhaps I made it too early in my own life. You are at a disadvantage when you choose too large a subject. He was 30 when uh, when he made Jules Jim. So even though he was a he was you know a, um, a a prodigiously talented and visionary filmmaker in terms of what he was doing with cinema. I did, it feels like there's a sweep and a span of life and experience that's supposed to be in this film that's a bit elusive to him. Yeah, I yeah, I fully agree. It does, as much as it's kind of a formally beautiful and well-acted and beautifully written in many regards, there's, there's a slight immaturity to it. Oh, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to get too into, like, the male gaze, but when you kind of watch it, and I'm, I'm not even saying that it's an inferior film to Passages, but it's just, like, such a such a shallow depiction of womanhood where she seems to be kind of like wildly pivoting between like Madonna Hall in a way that is pretty uninteresting. Whilst I do believe that that kind of, I mean, arguably homoerotic and like deep bond that forms between Jules and Jim and like that, 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 that thing of them being on different sides of what is quite an arbitrary line within this great war and the bond that kind of maintains is an interesting element but i mean the catherine of it all i found pretty 
depressing, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, and it would, uh, you could phrase it as being saving grace, or it only works because it's Jean Moreau and she is a, quite a magnetic presence in the film. You can tell out of the three of them she is the star. And she does manage to embody that very French of the period thing of beautiful but inscrutable cold but passionate <laughs> which we look back now and see that is completely through the eyes of the director holding holding the camera stilo and in this case Francois Truffaut but she ha- embodies that quite well even though she, she this is not a this is kind of a breakout role for her she had already worked with some great filmmakers like Antonioni and Louis Mal before this but this feels like one of her landmark roles but it's a pretty thankless one as well at times isn't it and I forget. I watched this when I was a teenager because it's sort of an, uh, you know, a touchstone. If you're going to watch French cinema, you've got to watch this. I'd forgotten how it ended, which is a ridiculous ending. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Perhaps yeah, I should have given it a couple of days before I came to like record on with you. But I think having watched that ending, it's a, it's a bit of a sour taste in the mouth. Mm. But but I suppose I'll, I'll focus on that first 30 minutes, which is the thing we, you know, quite superficially look to the French New Wave for when it's they're dancing in the cafe and running through the art galleries. And I mean, that that's a different film. But in this one, they run across the wa- railway bridge just because they're so full of enthusiasm and energy and youth. And you believe that. It's very um, compelling and infectious. And the camera and the interventions of the the filmmaker in the flow of the narrative support that. Like within the first few minutes, it feels very up to the moment that a film would call attention to itself when um, I think it's Jim, you know, introduces the pair as Jule Jim and looks at the camera as he's saying it. Like, that's the title of the film, guys, <laughs> which is, you know, feels like, like, doesn't feel like it's um, 70 years old. And or 60 years old, I'm dating this film. But then also the freeze frames that it it employs where it actually stops the action for seconds so we can really focus on the emotion, the expressions of the character. The use of um, those, those aperture wipes where it zooms in on a certain point and zooms out. The use of the camera where it's so freewheeling and spirited, um, so in constant movements and constantly cutting. There are moments where the characters come upon a character and the camera has a sort of um, crash cut, smash cut into the new character in the room and then goes from different perspectives in profile and, um, and from side to side. And it just keeps you really on your toes and really has a youthful energy, a restless energy to it. And I know that filmmakers have drawn, like Scorsese in particular, points to a film like this as the, the bedrock of how he looks at cutting and looks at camera movements. And you see that all within the first 30 minutes. And then it really settles down in the latter half as a sort of, I suppose, yin and yang of like, that's the the potential of the Parisian bohemian life that was ruined by the First World War. And there is something quite narratively intriguing that we lose in the British narrative tradition of First World War stories where in Paris you may have a friend who happens to be Austrian who then gets called back home to be on the other side of a war and you were literally just shacking up with them a day ago which is quite you know interesting I'm sure the novel must be quite fascinating as well apparently it has more of a fleshed out ensemble and cast of characters it's not just focusing on these three I want to ask Leila are you aware of the band Sixpence None the Richer? Of course I am Yes, me <laughs> 
Have you seen the video for Kiss Me that is a rip-off of this film or a tribute to this oh, film? Oh, God, is it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> the black and white oh, one. Oh, no! <laughs> Thanks for ruining my... I mean, I want to. I don't want to age myself. Childhood. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's a it's a weird one because yeah, it's like the Simpsons where you where you get you know you, before you see Silence of the Lambs, you see the Simpsons references to Silence of the Lambs or something. Um, but yeah, um, this is my theory that you can never watch Psycho for the first time because even before you watch Psycho, you've seen a thousand ripoffs of Psycho. Absolutely. And um, it's so funny watching the Kiss Me video because, and also it's quite hard. There's this Mandela effect type thing where. Um, because Kiss Me was then in She's All That. It's used in, is it used in the um, makeover sequence in She's All That? It's used in a very important point in that movie. Possibly. All um, I remember about She's All That is that it was written by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, amazing. But there's, 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 <laughs> a video, there's a video that has clips from She's All That for Kiss Me. And that is the one, if you go on YouTube, that's the one with hundreds of millions of views. And then if you scroll all the way down and there's the Paris version of the video, which is the one I definitely saw at the time. But for a minute, I was like, did it exist? Have I have I misremembered this? But it's quite interesting that all of the references they have in that music video to this film are from that opening half hour, the free-spirited youth stuff. They don't have anything from the back half, which is, I can see what they're going for in terms of there is just a lack of emotional maturity that's in passages and a lack of that observational wisdom that that we were talking about. There's so much narration in this film where you may have a scene where Catherine is seducing Jim back into the fold and then there'll be a narration where it comes in saying, and then Catherine seduced Jim back into the fold and Jim couldn't say no. And it's like there's not, there is that lack of confidence maybe. Not a not a terrible film, but I just think because again, like you said, like the first thirty minutes is really where the magic happens. It's a disappointing film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see that, and 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 maybe this is this is where the usual magic of the podcast maybe maybe our third the, the third point in the love triangle of the podcast would be positive on the film, more positive than we are. It's it's definitely an important part in that early phase of Truffaut's career and the early promise of the French New Wave and watching it against similar films from other members of the New Wave. Godard would be making films with similar youthful spirit and vibrancy and messing with editing and continuity and all this stuff, but very soon would be going in a direction of almost completely avant-garde and political movements. Whereas Truffaut, I picked up, as I always do when I watch old films, I picked up, I've, I have three different editions of David Thompson's biographical dictionary of cinema, but he very much sees Truffaut as a, as a filmmaker who never made a perfect film, made very imperfect films and uh, never really followed through on the promise of 400 Blows. And I'm not really a French cinema fan. I know that David, David Jenkins would have would talk us to talk to us till cows come home about French cinema, um, but yeah, th- this this is one when you revisit it with the stature, it's not necessarily an outright banger. It feels like a bit of a sad note to end things on, but we do at least have your one last thing. Michael, oh what is your okay. non-movie recommendation? Something I've not yet delved into that I'm waiting until we finish recording to delve into that's really fascinating and should cross over with film a little bit more than it should is a playable documentary video game that's come out. 
this week within the video game world one of many critics say one of the things that's holding video games back from being a true art form is that it is almost constantly in a state of being a goldfish that it's because due to its sort of technological innovations every few years with a new platform being released there is no sense of history no sense of knowing its own history and legacy and there's this this playable documentary game called the making of karateka has come out and are you aware of Prince of Persia? I am. Maybe you've seen the film. Yeah. Well, the video game was a massive video game in the late 80s. And the guy who made that made a game called Karateka before that, which was a groundbreaking martial arts two-player fighting game, very much in the vein of what Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat would have huge success in. But it's a game, it's a, it's a game that you can play where there are audio commentaries, talking head interviews, design documents that are all interactive built into the game as well as playable versions of all the different iterations of the game. So it's almost like the Masters of Cinema Criterion Collection treatment for a game from the early 1980s, which is a really fascinating development for me. So I've not played that yet or experienced that yet, but I'm really intrigued too. The thing that I am definitely experiencing that I know you like is the current season of Only Murders in the Building. It's so good! is a joy every Tuesday to... To watch i know they sent me the first eight i gave it I, I did give it the full five stars but like there is a moment in the first episode and now it's all out there where they kind of set up this like very unsuccessful jobbing actress who's wanted to be a star her entire life and the moment where she turns around and it's meryl streep i've just never known joy like it it's so good i i, I love that series because it started off as such a showcase for Martin Short um, and Steve Martin and, um, you know, the rest of the, the 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 cast as well. And as it goes on, it just finds more space for older actors to really do something different and interesting. Every time Jane Lynch turns up, I'm absolutely in awe of what she's she's doing as well. It's such a fun, a fun show. It does, it's not outwardly exciting or cool it's not like edgy or it's not setting twitter on fire like the bear is i suppose but um i'm quite happy to have my uh yeah have my cup of tea in the evening and watch only murders in the building oh maybe this is this is what happens with age because i've not seen a single episode of the bear but i have been tuned in only murders in the building and i punch the air when andrea martin comes on screen <laughs> well thank you so much michael i'm gonna rewatch it just because you insisted uh, so if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies next week. Uh, there will be a regular episode, but for that, we will be doing a Live from the Ground Venice special, so you can hear about all of the most exciting films debuting on the Lido. Thanks very much for tuning in, and if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Teeth, and my guest this week was Michael Leader. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankers. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 